Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. stuff is keep it simple um keep it fun and these dogs are so much more talented and capable than you think they are if you don't screw them up if you're currently in the market for a kennel then be sure to check out gunner kennels gunner kennels is the only kennel that's five star crash rated from the center for pet safety the double wall rotomodal construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions also gunner kennels has a lifetime warranty These kennels are built to last a lifetime, and Gunner stands behind that. Gunner also has all the accessories you can need, from fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around in your truck. So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast. Welcome back to another week of GDIY, everybody. It's actually just me doing the intro this week. Adam's out of town on an annual family fishing trip, so he's out there having all the fun while I'm doing all the work here. But uh, we have a fun episode this week. We have Pete Aplikowski. And he's a judge in NAVDA. He, he's the president of the Minnesota chapter. And uh, we cover a lot of ground this week. We cover everything from why you should get involved in the NAVDA, the benefits of a training group, uh, the endless evolution of a chapter trying to stay out in front and and evolve their training concepts and outlooks as as everybody kind of gains experience. And uh, then we get into some training-specific topics and he talks from a point of just personal experience and his outlooks. He's not speaking on behalf of NAVDA officially or anything like that, but it's a really interesting podcast. So for for everybody that's been sending us messages saying, hey, we need more NAVDA content, we need more NAVDA content, here you go. This is going to be a NAVDA-heavy episode. So be sure to listen to it. Let us know what you think. Uh, remember to rate, review, five stars. That goes a long way to help out the podcast. We get asked a lot 
how can I help out the podcast? I'm not in a position to where I can donate to Patreon. Uh, that's the easiest way. So if you go to Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever platform you use, if there's a rating feature, be sure to hit that five stars. Leave us a, leave us a review. Helps a lot of other people find us and listen to us, and that's the quickest and easiest way you can help out the podcast and help yourself out. Go to our social media, Gundog It Yourself, on Facebook and Instagram. We have a huge giveaway going on right now between Gunner Kennels, Hunt Ready with their brand new vest, and Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong. So Gunner's offering up your choice of a medium or intermediate kennel decked out with all weather kit, the performance pad, all that fun stuff. Hunt Ready is offering up their brand new vest. It's it's awesome. I've, I got to use it in the field last week. It's it's really nice vest. And then Zach at Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong, he's offering up a free month of his personalized fitness routine. And we've talked about that here recently. It's uh, it's impressive. It's a good program. So if you're needing help getting in better shape to go hunt, to live life, whatever, check him out. Uh, you can find Gunner and Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong's links on our website. If you're interested in buying anything from Gunner, please use our link at gundogityourself.com. That's another way to help out the podcast, and we get a kickback from that. And so if you're considering getting anything, I don't care if it's a hat, T-shirt, the straps, anything, be sure to use our link. And then also our Patreon. We actually had a lot of new signups last week, and we appreciate everybody that, that took the time to do that. And maybe it's not all four additional names in the hat for the giveaway, but hey, even if it is, we're happy to have you. Uh, we're not going to quibble over what brought you to us. We're just happy to have you. And yeah, it does give you more names in the hat for the giveaway. So if you're wanting more opportunities to win the uh, the big giveaway that we have going on at the end of the month, then sign up for Patreon. You get your name in the hat for every dollar that you sign up for. And so go check that out, patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. And just to kind of piggyback off Gunner, we, uh, we're, we're down here in Nashville. Gunner's based out of Nashville, Tennessee also. And as most people know, we got hammered by a tornado pretty big last week. And uh, Gunner, they helped out the city in a way that only Gunner really can. They took trailer loads of their kennels and donated them to local shelters and people to help house and protect pets, dogs, cats, everything until they could be reunited with their families. And that's just one of the many reasons why we love working with Gunner. They're a class act company. We've been lucky enough to deal with them for a number of months now. And every time we've talked to them, their customer service is amazing they're always enthusiastic to talk to anybody and they stand by their products. So there's there's a million reasons to buy Gunner just for the quality of gear that they have, but also they they stand by their product and they care about the community and and dogs overall. And this example last week with the tornado and, and donating that number of kennels to these shelters, they weren't getting anything in return for it. It's just that's who they are. So be sure if if you're on the market for a kennel, look long and hard at a at Gunner and check them out because they're a really class act company. 
And sorry this came across as just a big infomercial on this week's episode, but that's what happens when I have to do it by myself and Adam's not here to kind of bring the the character and the humility and, and, and the fun to the intro. I'm all serious over here. But uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy this week's episode and we'll be back with you next week. Appreciate it, guys. Do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts? Is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up? You train your dog, but now it's time to train yourself. Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder. This company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love. From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use the discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger, and recover faster. All right, everybody, we're back and we're joined with Pete Aplikowski. Pete, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, man. Thank you. So start off with the obvious. Tell everybody where you're coming from. I'm coming to you from uh, the Twin Cities of Minnesota tonight. Awesome. So you're up in grouse country then. Uh, a little bit north of here gets into grouse country. We're kind of on the transition between the southern Minnesota pheasant country and the grouse country here. Okay. So next thing, the obvious question is how long have you been into hunting and more specifically hunting with dogs? Well, I've been hunting my whole life. Uh, my dad was mostly a big game hunter. He had, uh, So I did a lot of deer hunting growing up with him and then went to college in Duluth, Minnesota. That's grouse country up there and uh, got exposed to pointing dogs with some of the guys I met in college up there. And that's where, that's where it really started. Uh, that was about 30 years ago. All right. And so what was your breed of choice? What really got you? What what struck your fancy? Well, so when I finally got my first dog years ago, it was, uh, I had went on a hunting trip to Iowa and a friend of mine, had a Springer and a friend of his had a lab that I borrowed for the weekend. And that lab really, I fell in love with that thing and it got home and immediately ordered a puppy from that same breeder. That was my first dog. That was back in the mid nineties. And then I uh, lost that dog kind of really in age to a bad situation. But uh, and then um, I wanted a little bit smaller dog because I was doing a lot of travel up in Canada uh, on small planes and stuff. And I uh, met a guy that had a Boykin Spaniel, and I really liked that dog because it would do everything the lab would do in a pint-sized package. So I had that dog for a while, and then uh, through some life changes and circumstances, I had to adopt that dog out and... Uh, and then I had no dog for a while. I was kind of getting my career going and doing some different things. And then seven years ago, almost to the day, my first versatile dog, I picked him up uh, here, and that's a poodle pointer. And uh, when I picked him up, the breeder said, we'd really like you to test a dog in NAVDA. And I said, what the heck is NAVDA? That was seven years ago, and now I have three dogs, and I'm a judge and the president of the largest chapter in NAVDA. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's awesome. So you started with labs, then went to Boykins, and now you've got a, a poodle pointer. Do you see yourself switching to a different breed at any point, or are you pretty well, dead set I got on? A poodle, I got a poodle pointer, and I got two griffs also. Okay, so you've already um, switched out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we can get into that a little bit later about my love-hate relationship and what I love and just <laughs> okay. don't like about each one of them, I guess. But that's what I'm, I see myself with a bearded dog for the rest of the way here. Very nice. So, so you mentioned NAVDA. Let's just go ahead and touch on that. What what brought you to NAVDA? Well, 
I, like I said, my first exposure was, to it was uh, my breeder wanted me to run in that naturability test, and um, so I got hooked up with our chapter for it. That first test, I ran that dog at six months old, and I didn't prepare for it at all. I didn't know anything. Might have showed up to a training night and put a quail or two down for it and just kind of showed up, and we bombed it. I mean, first of all, he's a lot of dog, and uh, probably too much dog for me as a first versatile dog, and I made a lot of mistakes training him early on. We all do. Um, but we got through it. He ended up getting a prize, too, natural ability the second time I ran him with some help. And then... Uh, I've actually run him on in the utility. He doesn't quite have the mental stability to get through that utility test. He's a little too smart for this planted bird game, but he's a hell of a hunting dog. Yeah. So, and then, so the breeder pretty much asked you to run in natural ability, and then now you're a judge. So you really got hooked on the NAVDA game. What what stood out in the NAVDA world that really so, just made you yeah, happy? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So what I really liked about NAVDA is when I first showed up, it's not a it's not a competition. Um, I've been around some retriever trial stuff in the past, and it's like a whole different uh, culture and environment. And you show up to a NAVDA thing, and everybody's friendly, and everybody wants to help each other because the dogs aren't competing against each other. They're competing against they're judged against a test standard. And I think that philosophy alone kind of filters down through the organization, and and is what has the culture of what NAVDA is. Yeah, I, I noticed. I've only been doing NAVDA for a couple years, but I've noticed that. It doesn't really matter where you go. All NAVDA people are generally pretty similar. And it's like kind of going to a family reunion when you go to a different chapter. You you meet people. Um, you might know some people. And if you don't know people there, you probably know some of the same people. So it's it's pretty cool. You can, like you said, it's not competitive. And it's an overall just a great environment. I agree. So you said that you made a bunch of mistakes with that first dog. I'd be interested. I know you've got a long list of stuff you want to cover with us, but uh, share some of those mistakes you made. I think we we always learn from mistakes. Well, one of the things our chapter does is we have very easy access to lots of birds for our members. And uh, I think if you get too many uh, mishandled and uh, uh, improperly exposed bird exposures to a high prey drive dog, you're really throwing gas on the fire. And uh, <laughs> that was sense. the case with this dog. And so I would be, I was a lot more careful about it with my second, with the griffs coming along. But they're, they're, they're a different dog as far as on the pointing of cooperation scale too. So they were a lot easier as far as that part goes. So you mentioned that your first dog, the poodle pointer, he was kind of too smart for the, the uh, planted bird game. I think is how you you put it. So I'm assuming that you do a fair amount of hunting. How how did the uh, hunting season this past season wrap up for you? Well, we had a good year. I uh, hunt a lot out west. I go to Montana a few times. I hunted Montana, South Dakota, and Iowa a lot this year. Uh, another fellow, Nan, the judge, and I also went out to Utah chucker hunting, but that was on a destination kind of guided thing. We did not bring our own dogs on that. And then I did some southern Minnesota hunting, too. I'm not much of a grouse hunter, actually. I like hunting the prairies more. Okay. So did you make any big trips this year out, out west? Yep. I spent a couple of weeks in Montana, uh, pretty big weekend in South Dakota, and then uh, four or five days in Iowa were my big trip, most productive trips this year. Uh, I would say for pheasants, Iowa was the best this year for me. Yeah, so we actually got up to Iowa ourselves at the end of the season, and we just came across a bunch of hens. There's a few roosters, but there's good number. And I've heard on a couple of other podcasts, I think the secret's starting to get out that Iowa actually had a pretty good bird season this past year. 
got a spot. I got some access to some private land and boots on the ground intel for when the crops are getting out and what day what day you want to show up there. And uh, nice. I got I got there on the right day, and boy, it was really fun for a couple of days. Awesome. So, are you kind of getting back into the training mindset now? Now that hunting season's wrapped up. Yeah, I've been real busy with the chapter all winter, kind of getting things reorganized. We're kind of making some big changes for the coming year. Um, so me and the, our board of directors and our director of training have been doing a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes work, getting lined up for training. So and we can talk about that. Yeah, we'll get there. I want to I wanna keep going down your line with your dogs real quick for a second, though. So with your training, what are you working on with, with your dogs? Do you have any big goals for this year? Well, my year? dogs are five, six, and seven. So as you can see, I did a great job of spacing them out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, but when I, when I hunted, I hunt out West a lot, it would just burn through dogs. And I just came to the realization that if I'm going to go out West for a couple of weeks, I got to have, you know, at least two or three dogs. Yeah. Um, so that's how I ended up with that. But, um, I'm pretty much done utility. I, I'm going to, I'm going to re I'm going to test that young, my youngest Griff in utility again this year. Um, both my griffs are high priced two utility dogs. They each kind of got a little hitch in their giddy up that I've been trying to figure out. Um, <laughs> I think they're, I joke, they're prize one dogs with a prize two trainer and handler is what they are. So I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. You're not the only one uh, in that situation. That seems to be a pretty common story. So what are some of the, uh, what are the hitches in the get up with, with the griffs? Well, so my old, my, my middle dog, the, the griff that's going to turn six this year, he's a 194 prize two utility dog. And if I was a better bird flusher, he'd be a 200 prize two with just the three in duck search. But, and that, that test, I did a bad job of flushing a bird or two in his face that came unsteady him a little bit that I had to kind of pull it back together, but we got through it. Um, he's just not duck crazy enough to, I, I can't rely on him to go out there and do a four duck search. Um, it's kind of funny last summer I was thinking about training and running a utility again, but I got kind of busy helping other people with dogs and our tests were kind of full. So I just decided to, to help other people. And the week after our, our utility test, there was a big German test that they also used our duck search pond. So I knew there was going to be ducks out there and I took all my three dogs down there and just let them go. And my poodle pointer and my younger griff that does good duck searches, they just take off and start tearing it up and are into ducks like nothing. And then, yeah. My uh, middle griff, the one that's just not super duck crazier, he did exactly the same thing he did on his utility test. He went out and expanded a little bit and got out there and dinked around and then came back at nine minutes and stood on a on a, a bog at about 40 yards from me and just stared at me for two minutes. <laughs> oh, man. Just, that's just who he is. And at that point, and, you, and, can't, you, know, so you can't give another I command. I, or, I guess you could, but you'd be getting docked points yeah, or something. Yeah, and I, was, I knew I was at a three or on the test day. He did the same thing. And so, I mean, so when I saw that that day, like these dogs have been pent up for a month watching me train other dogs, and I take him down to a pond full of ducks, and that's what he does. He's just not a four-duck search dog. Right. But he's my best hunting dog on the field. I'll tell you what, I love that dog. That's interesting. All right, so... We kind of covered your what brought you to NAVDA, and, and really we're about to start getting into what we wanted to talk about mainly today and the, the benefits and how people can really learn from a well-run chapter and the really endless evolution of a chapter because it's kind of like what you're doing with your chapter. Y'all y'all are revamping your training system, so we're really going to talk a lot about your individual chapter tonight. 
So I guess let's just start off with first describe the benefits of any NAVDA chapter training in general. Well, the big thing that any chapter can provide and what we do, access to grounds and birds. Um, and then I think that obviously the knowledge that can come from other members and stuff is, is also a big part of that. But if you don't, if you don't have grounds and birds, you got nothing. Um, so that's the biggest thing that I think any chapter can help people get sorted out. Um, and we we do a pretty good job with that. Although grounds are always a challenge, especially when you're on a big metropolitan area like we are. But we actually lost one of our training grounds that was a private hunt club on the west side of town that changed ownership last year. And we couldn't uh, keep that going this year, unfortunately. So we're kind of scrambling for the people on that side of town right now. So the grounds you guys have right now, are they uh, private land or public? People can access them uh, we've got, anytime? We've got a large private piece of ground here near the Twin Cities, uh, Kelly Farms. It's a pretty famous place. A lot of dog organizations use it. We've actually held the Invitational there years ago, in addition to our tests and training. Um, you know, and that's private land. It's uh, very surprising that it's still there and undeveloped because of how close the town it is, but we're hanging on there as long as we can. Um, and then we've got a public piece of ground about an hour or so north of the Twin Cities that's uh, state wildlife management area with a piece added on to it that's dedicated to dog training. Those are our two primary areas. So let's go ahead and let's pretend like we're talking to somebody that's never attended a training day. You know as well as I do, we've seen enough people come in for the first time. They may spend five, ten minutes out there in their in the field with their own puppy. They say it's not for them and they leave. What what do you try and explain to the other people to keep them coming back and, and kind of buy into the mission? Well, the first thing we're trying to do is make sure that nobody shows up, that we don't know who they are, what kind of dog they have, how old the dog is, and, and what their goal is for the year. Um, I think in the past we've just published our training nights and people show up and and they and depending what time of night you show up, there could be anywhere from 10 to 30 or 40 people in trucks there and um, there's no real plan or organization for who's working on what. It's all a big um, surprise when you show up. <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm a very bad waiter. I'm a very impatient person. So when I got that first dog and showed up to some training nights, I, I, can't, I can't sit around for two hours and watch people. I got to be doing my own thing. So that's kind of why I broke out on my own. And of course, that's why I made some of the mistakes I made but because of my impatience. But um, So what we're trying to do this year is make sure that we know who you are, what, what kind of dog you have, what your plan is for the year before you show up to our first or any, any training night. And we, we did an online survey this winter. It's still ongoing. We're going to close it down here this month as we get ready for training in April. So we've got 79 people respond to that training survey already this year so we know who they are. Holy cow. And that's all over the spectrum. Are, are most of them brand new handlers or do you have more experienced no, no, that's, people that's there? Every that's that's uh, brand new people with puppies and all all the way through people that are training and working toward utility. But that gives you an idea when when you show up for a training day, what you're getting yourself into, I guess, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of my goal is to uh, is to, and we're even going to do some demonstrations on the first couple training nights this year. We're going to set up some of the utility stations and show people what a utility dog has to do. I think some people get on this path if they want to train for utility. 
and they, maybe they don't duck hunt. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe that's not the path that you want to be on and, and spend all that time and energy working toward, a, you know, a full finished versatile dog for both land and water. Maybe you're just a, maybe you just need a field dog. You know, let's separate that out and not waste all these resources and time on, on something that you're, that's not your cup of tea, you know? Yeah, that's true. There's some people that are, that are going to do all the stuff for the sake of testing. And then there's other people that are like, I don't care what my dog does on water work because I don't duck hunt. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, so we're trying to get people into smaller groups of similar people with similar goals and get them hooked up with a, some experienced chapter member or training leader to get them on the right path. How's and then that? the other big, the other big change we're making this year is I'm, I'm trying to get people's mindset around not overtraining for the natural ability test. And I've actually changed on our website and what we're trying to get out to the chapter members. And instead of using the word training for puppies, we're using the word exposure. Perfect. Um, and trying to, and we'll, we'll get more into that, but that's, that's a big shift, right? On, you know, it's at least for the puppy people to start thinking about that. Yeah. So, so you just mentioned again, trying to incorporate a change into y'all's mindset and, and training. Let's give a, a real quick, because as you mentioned earlier, the chapter you're, you're in, it's, if it's not the biggest, it's, it's one of the biggest for sure. And one of the oldest chapters in NAVDA. So let's just touch on the chapter history real quick, and then we'll get into what y'all are changing and trying to improve off of how the chapter was originally built. Yeah. So we're, um, we actually held a test before there were chapters in NAVDA in 1971 or 72. And I, I wrote an article for the VHD magazine last year for as part of the 50th anniversary thing. It's in the May uh, the May 2019, last May's issue about the Minnesota chapter and the history, if somebody wants to check that out. But um, it was started by a small group of people led by a guy named Bill Jensen, who is a lot of people in NAVDA will know. Uh, Bill was one of the first judges, American judges in NAVDA, and he was foundation, him and his wife, of our chapter. And then it grew from there. So, and we've held a test every year since 1972. Um, and I've NAVDA doesn't keep stats, I don't think, on chapter membership, but we have over 250 members consistently now, and I'd be, I don't imagine there's any other chapter in NAVDA that can touch that. And we also lead the system in the number of testing days we've done the last few years. We do about 16 days of testing per year, over five weekends the last two years, and we're actually adding another day this year due to demand, so we're big. Yeah, that's a, that's a big chapter. We, we do a spring test and a fall test in our chapter, and, it, and it's... Uh, takes a lot of planning. If people haven't actually gotten involved in helping out their chapter, plan the test and everything, go volunteer because it'll open your eyes at how much goes into actually planning those tests and you're running that many tests per year. Y'all are just cranking them out. Y'all are staying busy. We're busy and it takes a lot of planning. We've got a pretty good board of directors and job descriptions. And I mean, our, our birds and stuff that we contract both with for training and testing are contracted out sometimes two years in advance with our suppliers. That's, oh <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so with, with a chapter that's so rich in history and has been around since before NAVDA really officially started testing and, and the organization that it is today, what, what kind of stood out to you that said, okay, we need a new way of looking at this because I know for years it was just, Hey, I, I need to know how to train my dog. And somebody would say, read the green book. And so what, what are your thoughts on that? And what made y'all decide? Let's, let's start improving this model. Well, becoming a judge, uh, that apprenticeship I did and all the dogs I watch and the different 
places around the country that I traveled, both as an apprentice and now as a judge, and you see how other chapters do things, and you, you talk to people, and you learn things. And being big has its advantages, but um, I think from a training standpoint, we got so consumed with uh, numbers of people, and puppies especially, that we, unless you knew an older chapter member that and got into their own little training group that to, to help mentor you, if you wanted to train toward past natural ability and utility, you were kind of on your own. And that was one of my frustrations when I wanted to take that path with my dogs and didn't do more. And so that's, along with the shift in thinking to, to back off on some of the training on puppies and do more of the exposure work, is to really help people come up with a plan and a path toward utility if that's what they want to do. Yeah, that makes sense. That's probably common throughout a lot of chapters. Uh, I think it's common for people to show up to a training day and then end up finding their own little group that they want to train with and, and or, you know, get invited to a group. Um, but you've either got to fit those people's personalities or be kind of bought in it per se. So bought into the group. Um, how are you guys going to remedy that? Well, I, I don't, I think due to the size of our chair, we don't have a training problem or a knowledge problem. We've got plenty in the people in the chapter that kind of know the ropes and have been sure. through, all the way through utility and invitational. It's really a management problem. And we're just, we got to manage the size of the chapter. Now I will say that it has advantages being big. I mean, we have money, like I said, we have grounds, we have a great bird supply system. Um, I'm, uh, we did a, we're starting to do some clinics where we're bringing in pro trainers. Uh, we did a force fetch clinic in February that I sold out in two days. Um, we just then decided to bring Kyle Huff from Pennsylvania in for a steadiness clinic at the end of April, limited to 40 people. That filled in less than a week. So we we can take chances on stuff like that and try to bring in some outside knowledge and some different ways of doing things too and, and know that we're not going to lose any money. Yeah, so pretty much with y'all size, y'all are – Y'all are able to offer a bunch of opportunities for somebody. So there's really no excuse for somebody in your chapter to be like, hey, there's not a chance for me to really learn here. Oh, that not, shouldn't be now, especially as we're trying to sort people out and get them in, into the right groups. Yep. Yeah. And, and also real quick, I think it's important to, to note that you are a judge in NAVDA, but you're not speaking on behalf of NABDA. You're just speaking from a standpoint that you're a trainer. You love to do this. You got involved with your chapter, and you're just trying to make it the most enjoyable experience and the most most uh, knowledge-accessible experience for anybody entering in this world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these are my personal opinions. I, I'm, I, am, I guess I'm speaking as the president of the chapter and on behalf of the chapter and what we're doing, but not for Big NABDA itself, obviously. And even my training ideas and stuff, I, you know, there's people in my own chapter that, that don't agree with some of the things I'm trying to do. Um, there was a little little revolt about this force fetch clinic we did. You know, <laughs> we've got a faction of our chapter that's all about the positive, positive, positive thing. And you use the word force and people freak out, you know. So, so there's no right or wrong way to do it. We're just trying to give people lots of options uh, for what they want to do with their dog. So you're trying to tell me that, that there's a couple dog owners that don't agree with other dog owners? <laughs> All right, so let's get into some of the more specific things that you change. You mentioned that you're splitting off into small groups. Explain exactly how y'all go about offering the small groups to the people coming into the chapter and how it's set up to ensure that they, they're they getting, I, I don't know if attention is the right wor word for yeah, it. Yeah, so let's start. Let's start with like let's say we we've identified through this survey who the puppy people are that are going to be natural ability testing in the spring. So we have a couple 
us in May. Um, those people, we get those dogs into the right groups, and they're going to get, you know, we obviously we get a late start up here with our winters and snowmelt, so we don't get into training until mid-April. Those people are only going to have maybe a month to train or expose their dogs to get ready for this test, which done right for most dogs should be enough, especially if they got some hunting in last year, and we're just trying to make sure they're ready for the test. Um, and then, um, obviously, there's, there's going to be the utility groups that get formed early in the year because that's going to be kind of an all-summer-long training thing. Um, but I want to touch about that natural ability thing a little bit. Um, yeah. One of the, the, the hardest thing I think is we get people that are going to natural ability test in the fall and our training passes on our grounds are kind of expensive. So people buy them in the spring and they, they want to show up one or two nights a week all summer long to get that dog ready for natural ability test mm-hmm. in the, in the September tests. And you know, that's too much. Yeah. Um, they get they want to then they want to start working on steadiness and obedience and all these things that we don't aren't even looking for in the natural ability test and and that's one of the things that's going to you know you get that's just a problem with the timing of it you know it's it's how do we get those people to do enough for their dog in the summertime and then run that test go hunting next fall and then we'll see you next year you know don't be clogging up our training nights all summer for doing stuff with your dog that it's not ready for you know um that's going to be a challenge i'm not sure we're going to i mean we're not everybody's going to buy into that no, that's me. I, I, I'm pretty overzealous with training. I just ran my dog in natural ability. Uh, I guess it was last spring um, and or last fall, maybe. I can't remember, but it wasn't too long ago. And uh, yeah, I'm like, I want to run utility in a couple months. And people are like, you're crazy. You have no clue what you're doing. Once you start training for it, it's like, yeah, you're right. I didn't have a clue what went into this. Um, and you mentioned earlier wanting to just keep pouring the birds towards your dog. I think that's a common mistake. You've got a gun dog. You want to get birds in front of it, but you know, it, it's not going to help the dog. It's going to create bad habits. It sounds like that's what you're trying to convince people of. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like access to birds is almost too easy. Um, one thing I'm trying to really get people to understand, I didn't recognize this either until you became a judge and you really see a lot of this stuff. This whole thing we do with planted birds at tests and training everything, it's a completely fake situation. And, sure. and the really good, smart dogs that figure it out, they, they hunt, hunting season are a completely different dog versus training and testing. And, yep. and doing, overdoing it leads to problems. It leads to, especially when you start putting pressure on dog on, on a dog around birds, like working on steadiness and stuff. And, you know, you, their points get soft, they start flagging, they start creeping. In worst-case scenarios, they start blinking and backing away from birds. And you don't want any of that. And if you, if you train properly in the right order and you have your foundation on obedience and stuff down, you don't need that many birds. I mean, right. you need to practice it and prove it before a test, but in the training aspect of it, if your foundation is there, you should be able to do it without creating all those problems. Man, you're talking my language right now, and and to kind of back up even further, when you first brought up the NA thing, it, it really spoke to me when you said that you're not even t- you're trying to tell people not to train for the NA test, but more expose the dog for the, the NA test. And when I say that to a lot of people, they look at me like I'm nuts, and, and it's kind of like to me that this is my personal viewpoint on the NA test is it's designed to get a true reading on what that dog does naturally. And so it's like, yeah, expose them to it, but you kind of the whole purpose of the test is to get a true reading of what, what that bloodline and that, that litter through in the puppy. And you have some people that, like you said, they'll spend all summer 
training for that NA test. And it's kind of like, are you really getting a really true reading of the dog's natural ability if you spent that much time training for it? I'd rather see a six-month-old dog throw out a 98 prize two or three than a dog that's 15 months old getting a 112 prize one and it's steady to wing and retrieving the hand. A dog that's steady and retrieving the hand on a natural isn't telling me much about his natural ability. Yeah, but you've got to score it that certain way. I, I've heard yeah, Nick gotta, say that yeah, we, we so many times. Yeah, but it, you know, I'm just saying, you know, if you were talking about the natural abilities and and the breedability of the line of that dog, are you really learning anything? Exactly. That that's my viewpoint, and I get I get a lot of eye rolls, and they look at me like I'm nuts. And I mean, it's it's each of your own. I mean, obviously, it's your dog. It's hey, if you want to ensure that you get the max score, but to me, you're kind of missing out on the entire purpose of what the the test was designed to give you anyway. Yeah, to back up a step two about what I'm trying to get people to realize on this exposure versus training thing, one of the biggest principles in NAVDA that you kind of learn as a judge that I think you can use as kind of a defining point as to what's the difference between natural ability and trained obedience is the phrase that pointing ends when the dog is aware of the presence of the handler. So whatever, when a dog goes on point, that's natural ability, that's instinct. And as soon as that handler starts approaching, now we're shifting and transitioning to an, in a, into obedience and steadiness. And if, if you just think about that one thing, when you're exposing your dog for natural ability, you know, why are we putting check cords on puppies and check cording them into birds? Do you think a check cord on a dog, doesn't, that dog doesn't know that, isn't aware of the presence of the handler? Yeah. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to get people thinking shifted on. Wow. That, that's a good point. I've never really thought of it that way, but that's the best way. Cause when, when people show up, they're like, okay, what are the judges looking for on an NA test? And it's like, okay, well, first off, I'm not a judge. I can tell you from the best way I can explain it, but what you just explained right there, it's a very, it's a lot easier to explain it that way than how I've been trying to get people to look at it as how they're going to be graded on the NA test. There, there's no obedience column on the NA scorecard. None. So, so people, you say that, and if you don't mind, as a judge, kind of explain the difference to people between obedience and cooperation. So cooperation is a natural instinct in a dog to work with you together as a handler, as a team, to go out and find and produce and recover game. And plain and simple, that's what it is. Um, pointing is a lot about cooperation. So um, you get a dog that's a real solid natural pointer. Uh, I mean, my Griffs, for example, were probably born steady to flush. You know, the first bird I ever put down for him, they pointed it and let me walk in front of them. That's cooperation. And you get, I know a lot of people say, well, I, the perfect NA score is a 110 with a three in co-op because that means the dog's got a little FU in it and I can reel that in <laughs> later, but then I know it's going to go do that duck search and stuff. And I just heard I that bought, the other day. I kind of bought into that for a while. I'm thinking, you know what? I'll take that cooperation over that FU, I think. Yep. I'm right there with you. Yeah. All <laughs> it takes is to have a non-cooperative dog. My first short hair was not very cooperative. I mean, I was constantly reeling that dog in with with a tone on the e-collar and it's just not fun uh the one i have now is more cooperative and i will take cooperation over over that fu like every time <laughs> i mean in the hands of the right trainer i think you know the 110 prize or with a three and co-op dog might be thing but not for me yeah. 
I'm right there with you. So to get back to the to the chapter, another thing that y'all have made available to everybody is y'all have a vast amount of resources online for, I mean, I guess you can call it homework. So if somebody has a question about anything, you can direct somebody, direct that person to your website and say, hey, you want to know about that? Go go read this. We, we have an article up. We have a, almost a step-by-step how-to or how to look at this. Who came up with that idea to start compiling that kind of database for you guys? Well, that was kind of me. When I got on the board a couple of years ago, when I became apprentice judge, our website was kind of in transition from an old, old archaic site to this new platform that um, one of our chapter members, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout out a name. His name is Drew Brown. He actually moved to Michigan. Drew and Mindy, his wife. Mindy's actually going to be an apprentice judge now. Um, but he's the he's the brains behind our website. He's the main architect guy. I'm just kind of the day to day content guy, and I started doing that a couple years ago. And it's based on a WordPress platform, so it's a pretty functional system that allows us to not only post a lot of content and links, but um, we do all our test entries and event entries with online payment and everything on there now. Um, but one of the things that I think you know, so I, I'll just make a comparison. So I, I'm a realtor for a living, and you know I've been doing it for over 20 years, and when the internet came out, they all said, oh, you, the internet's going to make you realtors obsolete. Everybody's going to have all the information at their fingertips. And we, we didn't know what was going to happen, but it's almost like too much information made us even more necessary to filter through all the crap to get people the right information. <laughs> and I, and I kind of feel that's what's going on in the dog world right now with the explosion of YouTube and websites and Facebook and obviously podcasts now. And so what I'm doing is trying to find, if I hear something or read something that I think is a very good NAVDA-specific article or content or something that people could get something out of, that's what I'm putting on the website. So I'm trying to be an aggregator and filter stuff down to NAVDA-based principled stuff, and that's what's on our website for both. And I kind of separate it out into uh, puppy exposure stuff, and then uh, down toward the bottom of the page, it moves into the more of the utility-type content. Nice. So does that help with people doing their... You want to call it homework in between training well, I days? Hope so we've we've been really on people this winter that hey, if you want to train for utility this year, uh, you got to get your retrieving and your obedience stuff and your foundation work done before the snow melts. Yeah. Um, last year I ran a utility training group. Uh, kind of the you know I kind of took it upon myself because it was lacking in the chapter to start this group, and I invited some people that I kind of knew that I knew were working toward it that were kind of floundering and. Um, I can tell you the four dogs that showed up that first day and watching their guys handle their dogs, I could tell which ones had the retrieving, the obedience down, and they were all prize two and prize one dogs at the end of the summer. Wow. The people that showed up that didn't have their retrieving, their obedience down, didn't have such a good day in September. Yeah. So that's what we've been trying to get the message out this year. That's why we did that clinic in February and what we're trying to provide these resources because um, the utility test is really, it's a retrieving and obedience test. That's yes. plain and yep. simple. Yep. And if you are, if we show up in my group this year, here's what I told my our training director: Whoever's going to train with me this year, the first day, I'm going to put a duck out 75 yard, plain and simple, out in the open drag. If it doesn't come back, I'm sending you home. <laughs> <laughs> Go fix that and then come back. Yeah. yeah. Now that that makes all the sense in the world. When I first started uh, planning on utility training my dogs, that's what Norm Prima told me was. Don't worry about so much the actual action in the field or anything. Just understand that the utility test is really an obedience test. And he, he kind of contributed that to retrieving as well. But it, 
really, after you've seen a couple of them or run a couple of them, you really understand it really is just obedience. Yep, and and I'm trying to uh, also, you know, a, a lot of people chase prize ones and stuff. I, mean, I still don't have a prize one dog. I'm still pretty new at this, but I've got a pretty good understanding of what it takes to get there. And that's why we're doing some of these clinics and bringing in guys that have been to the Invitational many, many times and, and seeing what they're doing as far as retrieving and steadiness work, you know, to give our people something to work with. I think some of our chapter members' goals should be just a, just a prize and utility. If you've got a prize utility dog, that's a damn fine hunting dog, better yeah. than most people have, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you look at the utility scorecard, you can pass with a lot of ones on that card, you know. For sure. Uh, so is, but your retrieving's got to be down, and, you, and the, the dog has to be at least steady till the gun goes off, kind of on average on all your birds. You know, you'll have a, it's, your steadiness scores an aggregate of everything that we see in that 30-minute hunt. But in general, if your dog is steady till the gun goes off, you're going to pass. Yeah. And if you think about the, the real-world applicability of that, why, why is steady to shot important? Well, that's because it's a safe dog. It's a dog that's not going to get shot in the back of the head when you're hunting. Exactly. Yep. That's a... And you look at a lot of those minimum scores on the utility scorecard, and like, well, why does it need this score to pass? But then if you start thinking about transition to that that trait over to real-world hunting, like a dog that will go out and find and point to produce game, let you get in front of it to flush it, be steady till the gun goes off, and if you knock something down, it's going to come back. Absolutely. And if you're in the duck blind, it's going to be reasonable, steady enough to not be barking and running around the shoreline scaring ducks away. Yeah. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, that's, that's a passable utility dog, what I just described there. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so for these resources that you guys have up, is that only available to your chapter members or is that available to anybody that's interested in reading them? Yeah. So the, our, our, our website is mnnavda.org uh, and that's available to the public. That's all public pages. Some of our event entries, cause we try to take care of our members first from some of our test entries and some of these clinic entries that we do are, are password protected, and those those go out only to chapter members to get signed up for those. But all the resources that I talked about, about the aggregating of all the NAVDA specific content, that's all public. It's on our training page. Wow, that's awesome. Well, let's go into a little more training-specific questions. And I, I know the answer to this, and we've kind of already touched on it, but let's just reiterate it because you have a lot of people that – they go too fast when they train overall. It's just overall people need to slow down. We've said it a million times. I, I know you're an advocate for it. But real quick, let's talk about the cons of necessarily doing retriever training, force fetch, train to retrieve, whatever you want to call it, before the NA test. Okay, so one of the things is we dogs learn by association, right? So any kind of pressure you put on a dog, and pressure can be – um, your voice, you know, a check cord, hopefully not an e-collar on an NA dog, um, your body language, you know, all these things are can, different dogs react differently to different kinds of pressure, or if you, for lack of a better word. And the last thing we want to do is have a puppy associate birds with a negative experience, um, it, it, especially when we're trying to judge their natural ability as far as pointing and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I just don't, I wouldn't do it. I mean, if you happen to have a real natural retriever, which, you know, they exist, I, I have a couple of them, encourage it and go with it, but don't try to finish that before your NA test. Don't try to clean it up. Just go with what you got. You're not getting judged on retrieving on the NA test. Yeah. I've heard of people force fetching their dog because it doesn't like water and then they have to force <laughs> fetch it so yeah. that it will go into the water uh, to get a bumper. Well, 
uh, who knows what's going on there. Yeah, but but I, <laughs> I can tell you this. Here, here's another thing I've seen as a judge, and I've talked to a couple really good trainers about it. Uh, you get a dog down by the water, and you can just tell this dog is avoiding the whole situation at the water mm-hmm. on, on an NA test. And the people are jumping around, and they're screaming and yelling. And they're, they got this bumper, and they're tapping the dog on the back and the nose with this bumper. <laughs> I'll, bet you, I'll bet you that dog is associating that bumper with a bad experience. Yeah. So I know one guy who's run a lot of natural Willie dogs. The first time his dog sees a plastic bumper is at the NA test. Oh, oh nice. That, that makes he sense. Gets the dog, he, he gets the dog to love water and takes it out swimming and chasing ducks and so that uh, any test throwing a bumper out there is no big deal. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So with your, you talked about uh, utility training and how it's really, you know, obedience and retrieving. What's your theory on utility? What's your approach to it? All right. Well, again, you could ask a million people and get a million different answers. There's no right or wrong way to do it. But in my travels and reading and listening to people uh, talk and other judges and stuff, I think there's a logical order of things that you can you can lay out for people to kind of take the risk out of some things. And and I've shared that article that I wrote on our website. I stole this term from something I saw on Facebook. I call it the go before woe system and steps. Yeah. And uh, in general, you got to get your you, the dog has to be a reliable retriever and has to know woe at some point. But the key to the whole thing is just duck search. The, nav, the, duck, the, the duck search is what trips up most people on the utility test. And I think it's because for certain dogs that don't have that super high prey drive and, and love of ducks and chasing ducks, they get too much steadiness and obedience training in them and they get down to the water and they don't want to go anywhere. They're afraid to go anywhere. They're afraid to get away from the handler and show that independence. And, and some dogs are bulletproof, you know, you get you can. It doesn't matter what order you train stuff in. They just they can do it all. Those are rare dogs, I think. So, what I would prefer is is after that natability test, you hunt that dog and get it on wild birds as much as you can before you do any steadiness work. And then when you start training for that utility test, you got to get that duck search down. You got to get that dog to love chasing ducks. Get out there and be independent and get away from you. And then you can start reeling it back in and start working on the steadiness stuff. Um, I made that mistake with my Griffs, and a lot of people in my training group last year had spent several, a couple, two, three years doing way too much field steadiness work, steadiness at the blind. You know, you get a dog that doesn't love to chase ducks, and you take it down and set it by the blind and walk away and do all your shots and all that stuff and tell that dog not to move. You think that dog's not confused when all of a sudden you take all that stuff away and fire a shot and send him off for something that he didn't see fall? Yeah, yeah. That's got to come first. And that's honestly something that I've picked up just training with Adam because I've done two utility dogs myself and I've kind of just done it all in one go. It's kind of, if the weekend is available to go do field work, I would do field work. And then it's, I'll do duck search when I can do duck search. And then Adam came down and he was kind of explaining his, his thought process and what he was trained within the Potomac chapter and everything, essentially what you're describing the go before woe. And when he first said it, I'm like, well, I mean, it worked fine for me. But then after seeing it in action and really, really slowing down and considering it, it makes all the sense in the world. And I really think that from my dogs here on out, that's how I'm going to handle it because it just makes too much sense. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, some dogs, it doesn't matter, but why take the chance? You know, let's 
do it do it that way, and you're probably going to have better results. I think, or yeah, your odds I think anyway. it's a safe way. I mean, I can't take credit for uh, you know coming up with that. The guys in the Potomac chapter told me yeah. to do it that way and explained why, and it and it made sense. But there's a bunch of different ways to do it, uh, and you you can still obviously get to the end goal by doing a different method. But it does make a lot of sense for the dog to to work on the duck search first, make that an extension of force fetch, and then start working steadiness in the field once he's consistently getting what you consider a four in duck search. And I think the remain by blind sequence at that point should come pretty easy. What do you think? Well, if your dog knows woe and is a reliable retriever, that marked retrieving and healing course and that remain by blind and all that stuff should not be a big deal to a dog that's got the foundation down. Right. Um, I actually think overtraining, you get some of these dogs that like to anticipate retrieves and you do that stuff too much and they start counting shots and they're leaving after that third shot. You know, I know <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I try to teach that backwards and all mixed up in different orders and not do it too much so the, the dogs don't get to guess what's coming. Um, I know one pro trainer who the first the first time his dog ever sees that whole sequence is at the test. His dogs are foundationally good enough retrievers and no wool that he doesn't even mess with it. He just does it on test day. Wow, that's interesting. And I've been working on that for weeks now, I think. <laughs> so one thing that you've consistently said a number of times is good retriever. On top of obedience, you need a good retriever. Your chapter just held the first force fetch clinic that you mentioned earlier. Uh, obviously, we don't have enough time to go through the entire force fetch program. We're going to do that a few weeks from now, probably. So any highlights? Like, what 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 did you come away from that clinic saying, oh, I never, I didn't know that, something new? Like, any highlights from that clinic? Yeah. It did, and that clinic is actually what made me decide to try to give it one more go at the utility test with my youngest, Griff, because um, he was such a natural retriever when I got him, and I was afraid of wrecking that, that I didn't do much in the all with force fetch and stuff with him. I just kind of rolled with it. His problem is he spits out birds on hot days. Um, if I happen to get a cool day on utility test, he, he might be okay, but it's nothing, you know, again, you don't want to go on a test hoping and praying, you know. You want to have a, make sure you're going to be able to do it. So I learned some stuff at this clinic, and the big thing to take away from me was the separation between the ear pinch and the getting the dog to reach and know that it has to reach and get something in its mouth and the hold and carry. And I think that's something that if you look at that green book method, it's not real clear in there. Um, hold and carry is first before you start doing that pressure and ear pinch to get that dog reaching and, and going after stuff. Otherwise, you end up in this vicious loop. Uh, Mark Whalen was the judge we brought in to do that, and he had the term he calls ear pinch purgatory is if you if you move on to the ear pinch before you got the hold and carry down you're going to be stuck there forever i'm glad you said that, that. i'm i'm really glad you said that because a bunch of the people that i talk to even if they've done force fetch with a number of their dogs they will will be discussing it and it always comes up to you know when i'm doing hold and carry on my dogs i first start out i'm not using ear pinch to teach hold and carry and they're always like, well, what's the difference? You just want to get it in their mouth. And I'm like, I want the the pressure and the ear pinch to mean get it in your mouth immediately. And I want all the pressure associated with that one command. And so it's like a lot of people have a hard time disconnecting hold and carry and fetch as a separate thing. And some even argue that you shouldn't teach it separately. What are your thoughts on that? 
well, my eyes were open for this. And uh, if you look at the success that the people that I think subscribe to that have, and it just makes more sense, especially if for dogs that maybe can't withstand a high amount of pressure or get they get turned off or shut down on you like that, the hold and carry pressure is minimal to, to get a little pressure on their gums to open up and hold and just enforce that hold, hold, hold. With, and, and then lots of different objects, different weights of stuff, different sizes of stuff. And then also transitioning into birds, real birds, all the way from frozen birds to thawed birds to shot up birds to live birds and every species that you want to hunt or test with. That's all part of hold and carry. I think force fetch gets the the reputation of being like pinching the dog's ear. That's that's what a lot of people think of is the ear pinch. And it, it's really, you spend, my method that I was taught sounds very similar to yours, um, probably because Mark Whalen's at the Potomac chapter. And I'm, uh, you know, so the methods are similar or, or right. very pretty much the same. But uh, hold and carry, I spent a long time on that. And uh, Ken McAdow was mentoring me through force fetch. And I'm like, all right, we're ready for the ear pinch. You know, I was nervous about it. And he goes, yeah, you're probably only going to be on this step for two or three days. And then you're going to be done pinching the ear. Yep. And And my confusion with my griff is you'd stick anything in front of that dog's face and he'd run down the table and put it in his mouth. I'm like, (laughs) how can I... How can I force fetch a dog like that? He already does that. Yeah, hold well, him the back. The problem was making him hold stuff that he did not want to hold when the chips were down, like mm-hmm. on a hot day. Yep. So, you know, again, I've been working on stuff. I found some objects that he absolutely does not like in his mouth, and I'm making him do it. So you can there ask. You, you can call me at five. You can call me at five o'clock on May 29th and tell me how it went. And I'll tell you how it went. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> it's pretty interesting to see people's force fetch buckets and the different objects they have. Oh yeah, I got a big tub of stuff. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah, and, and I, that's that's my main thing. And like Adam just touched on, is so so many people just consider you have to be ear pinching it to to be a part of the program. And if you do the hold and carry correctly, and then the next couple baby steps associating the pressure with put it in your mouth, you really you don't do a whole bunch of ear pinch throughout the deal. If you see somebody dragging a dog down the table by the ear a whole lot, like it's okay. There's a disconnect somewhere in that. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, then the, the other thing that, that we learned uh, that I've never really seen done in the right way is that e-collar overlay uh, at the end of that force fetch process too. And, and that's going to be a useful tool for, especially as you start getting into the blind retrieve and line training kind of work. Yeah. That's a good thing to have in your tool. Or sometimes if you get these dogs that are stuck on the duck search, they just don't want to go across. You know, that's the tool that you can hopefully use to say, hey, dog staying here is not an option. you got to go. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the next clinic that you have coming up. You have a steadiness clinic. What's that, what's that all about? Okay, so the, this retrieving clinic went over so great and response was so positive from our members about this is the kind of stuff we're really thirsty for. And then I, through some Facebook pages and stuff, saw that uh, this, this this trainer named Kyle Huff is from Pennsylvania was doing a steadiness clinic for the Missouri Uplands chapter. And I was down there judging for those guys last year, so I'm on their Facebook page. And I had a, and actually when Mark Whalen was here, I had brought it up and he said, that's the guy you got to get. So luckily, I reached out to Kyle, and I was kind of thinking next year, uh, but lo and behold, he had an opening at the end of April, and because, again, the size of our chapter and our website and everything, we were able to pull it together pretty quickly and fill it up in less than a week with 40 people. 
So um, oh. Kyle's a very experienced trainer at both the utility and the invitational level. So we're going to learn a lot about uh, non-check cord based steadiness training and how to go about it all the way up through backing and honoring. Wow. That sounds like something I'd like to attend. <laughs> yeah. Too bad. It's already filled up, huh? Yeah. And I, I might, I might know the guy that could get your spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Put in a good word for me. Uh, well, Pete, we covered a lot of ground on this episode. Is there anything that, that you want to mention specifically that we haven't covered that you just feel you need to get off your chest real quick? No, I don't think so. I, I think just uh, to get people to really start thinking about that Ames book and the principles in there and using that as a guide to, to at what point and what, what level and steps you should be transitioning your dog from one stage of exposure and then on to training. And, and, you know, just, it's all, it's not a very big book, but there's a lot of information in there. And I, even as much as I had to read that as an apprentice judge and everything, I still get something new out of it every time I pick it up. Nice. Some key takeaways I've gotten this evening is, uh, to not put too many, too many birds in front of a puppy prepping for the NA test. Um, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time on ear pinch for the, for force fetch. And I'm starting to realize even more that check cords i don't want to say they're useless they have their place but i've got one in my truck it it doesn't get used uh ever <laughs> and i'm so I'm, I'm liking a couple of things i've heard from you about not using check cords yeah and, and i think our chapter because we're so old and that green book was such a foundation from the earlier part of navda i mean you gotta you gotta remember that that book was written 45 plus years ago before e-collars um and, you know, there's been a tremendous improvement in training techniques and in and, and the dogs themselves and everything in that 45 years. And, I mean, I tell people this, so you got a puppy, you open up that green book, and on I think by page five, it's got a, like a spiked pinch collar and yeah. a leash, and by page 11, it's talking about formal healing, and it finally gets around to talking about pointing on page 78. <laughs> wow. And because it, I think the people that wrote that were such experienced dog trainers, I think they just assumed that everybody would be smart enough to not overcook their puppies before they got to that stuff. But uh, I think especially new people, they get a hold of that book and they get too, they get ahead of themselves a little bit. Oh, they'll skip they'll skip the first seventy seven pages and get to seventy eight yeah. and start throwing birds at them. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just that's the kind of stuff. It keep it simple, um, keep it fun, and these dogs are so much more talented and capable than you think they are if you don't screw them up. Perfect. I think there's no better way to close out than that. Hey, thanks, Pete. All right, man. Have a good night, guys. You too. See ya. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. 
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukonuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.